Uh, I know of a church, um, I've known of this church my whole life, uh, but they were in the process of building a sanctuary. The church has existed, I think, since the 60s or 70s. Um, but they needed, they were redoing some property and they were going to build a new sanctuary. Uh, and it's a Baptist church, fairly large Baptist church um, in Houston. And uh, it, it wasn't, it was a, down the road from the church that I went to growing up in Houston. But uh, they were building this building and they had their team of people who were doing all this research and planning to do the building thing. And, and it's a big undertaking to build anything. But it's a massive undertaking to build a church. Because some of you know, you've been on church building committees. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know. Everybody's got their opinion about everything. What color the pews should be. What color the carpet should be. What color the walls should be. How the building should be designed. But in the process of doing that, you have to think about everything. Hallways, bathrooms, where stuff is. How tall the platform should be. and you, You've got to cover all your bases. Well, this team, they were doing their due diligence, and they were going through everything. Uh, and they had started building the building, and it was going along, this Baptist church, very large Baptist church. And, and, and uh, they were reviewing the construction process. And in reviewing the construction process, looking at everything, being amazed at how well it was going, anticipating what it was going to look like, all of a sudden, one of the members of the building committee, their face fell, and they thought, oh, no. And everybody in the room thought, what? We've got this. The lights look great. It's going to look really neat here. Everything's going on. And uh, they said, we forgot something. And they thought, what are you talking about? We remembered everything. We even already got the, the pews ordered. What do you mean we forgot something? Well, we have Baptist on our sign, and we forgot what is probably the most essential thing in a Baptist church, the baptistry. They were already going. The, the, where the baptistry would be has already been built. The sanctuary is basically done except for the, you know, carpet and paint. And they forgot the baptistry. Baptist church forgot the baptistry. They ended up putting it in a room right outside the sanctuary and put a video feed <laughs> there because uh, uh, they were too far along in the process to go back. I mean, there's a reason the baptistry is elevated like that in a Baptist church. It's the symbol of salvation. And in a Baptist church, we try to recognize salvation is the greatest thing you can, you can have and participate in. We want to uh, elevate that. And, and you get baptized. You declare, I am with Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. And they forgot it, the most essential thing. And how often in our own lives do we get going in the process of doing whatever we're doing and we forget the most essential thing? The most essential thing, which we're, is the exact thing we're going to look at today. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Can anybody tell me what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is off the top of your head? Love chapter. Love, you hear it in weddings, right? Love chapter. But do you know where 1 Corinthians 13 falls? Where have we been the last few weeks? 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 are maybe, possibly, the biggest single section of Scripture that Paul spends talking about one subject. He's talking about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And in 1 Corinthians 13, it's about love, but it's about gifts. It's about gifts. It's not an accident that he talks about love there in chapter 13. I read some commentators this week and said who, who, who thought it had nothing to do with spiritual gift, and Paul just dropped it in the middle there. But I'm of the conviction that nothing is in Scripture on accident, <laughs> and that Paul put it there on purpose, this love chapter that uh, maybe you have. I've never heard a sermon on the love chapter that is in context of spiritual gifts. Has anybody? If you have, send me an email. I want to watch that deal. I want to see <laughs> this guy knew what he was doing. But in the process of preparing for this whole series, I thought Paul put love right in the midst of spiritual gifts. I mean, over this series, we've looked at what spiritual gifts are, uh, where they come from, why we have them. We looked at how we can discover our own spiritual gifts, which if you're watching online, there's a button. You can go to our website right below the, the, this message on our website where you can click on that. And you can take a spiritual gift survey online. You can print one off. We've got some physical copies of some right back there. We ran out a week or so ago, and so we got some more if you're in the room and you need one. 
um, to discover what your spiritual gifts are. Not that those will guarantee that's what your spiritual gift is, but it will point you in the right direction. Uh, and you, as you listen to the Lord and you take that survey and see what your spiritual gifts are, then you can discover how to develop them. That's what we looked at last week, how to grow your spiritual gifts. Well, today we're going to look at how to deploy our spiritual gifts, how to deploy them, how to use them, the process by, by, by which we use our gifts. Deploy them, as we see here, in love. Now, jump back a few verses from 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to start in uh, chapter 12, verse 27. Kind of wrap up what Paul's been talking about as he builds his discussion points to get to chapter 13. In verse 27, Paul writes, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So, remember, he's giving us an illustration, if you've been with us in this series, that uh, an example of the body, that if we as Christians are a body, then each individual member of the body of Christ, of the church, each in, you are a member uh, just because you know Jesus. Um, and so he says, like, in your body, your physical body, you have a finger. It has a different function than your nose. Your finger can't be your nose, no matter how much you want it to. Sometimes I guarantee you something you might grab. You definitely don't want your finger to be a nose. And your nose cannot be a finger. If it can, that would be amazing. We need to video you and send you into America's Funniest Videos. But your nose cannot be a finger. Your finger cannot be a nose. In the same way, you can do certain things that I can't. You have gifts that God gave you to use that I cannot use because I don't have those gifts. In the same way, I've got gifts you don't have. But when we're all functioning together, using our gifts as God designed them to, to be used, we, we are functioning in the same way that a body is supposed to function when it, all of its parts are functioning properly. And so that's the illustration he says here. You are the body of Christ, individually members of it, individually parts of it. Verse 28, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, then third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. And so look at these. I mean, you got apostles. As best we can tell, I mean, these guys he's talking about, they were eyewitnesses of Jesus. They were commissioned by Jesus. They went all over the place telling people about Jesus and starting churches. They were church starters, church planters. Then you got prophets. Prophets receive direct revelation from the Spirit concerning things that they can't know otherwise. Teachers. Teachers explain truths that have already been revealed. Miracles, powerful supernatural workings. And those others are pretty self-explanatory. Healing, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues. Now, I want you to look. I mean, if you read it just at face value, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, we can get into trouble when we interpret first century scripture on 21st century thinking. Because when you read that, you might think, well, he's listing importance. First apostles then prophets, then teachers, then miracles, and so on and so on down the list. But Paul's just spent the entire chapter of chapter 12 saying that one gift is not more important than another gift. And so if he's just spent the whole chapter thus far saying none are more important, why would he now say, well, here's some that are more important than others? That's not the, what he's talking about. He's just kind of giving us a list. Have you ever given a list and gone, well, you got this, and you got this, and you got this, and you got that? You're not saying, well, this one's the best, and this one's the second best. You're just giving you a list, and that's kind of what he says. That's why his numbers there dwindle off as he goes on in the list. you got first this, second this, third this, then that. Then, he doesn't keep going fourth, fifth, sixth. He just kind of gives us a list of what some of these are that he has. They're all essential and so it would seem he's just listing them out here. Look at verse 29. He says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? So does everybody have every gift? No. If you ever meet somebody who says they have all the spiritual gifts, well, they have the gift of lying. That's number one. Uh, and they have the gift of pridefulness. That's number two. Those aren't spiritual gifts. Those are satanic gifts. So get away from that person. But he's, he says, are, does everybody have every gift? No, they absolutely do not. Everyone should be using their individual gifts. But look at what he says next. This will trip us up too. He says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. The higher gifts. You know, where it will trip us up? is literally what that means is earnestly desire the greater gifts. But now hold up. Didn't we just say 
Paul spent the whole chapter saying one gift is not greater than another. Well, yeah, we did say that. So what is Paul saying here? If, if he spends the whole chapter saying one gift is not better than another gift, why is he saying here, earnestly desire the greater gifts? Well, again, that's interpreting first century thinking with 21st century thinking. Um, what Paul is, is saying here, uh, he's not saying that some gifts are to be considered greater. He's saying that we should earnestly be desiring that the gifts be used that will bring the greatest benefit to God's church, the greatest benefit to God's purpose for his church. He said earlier in the chapter that all these gifts were given for the advantage of God's church. And so the advantage of God's church is that the uh, greatest benefit would come to God's church. And so if every gift is being used where God designed it to be used, then the greatest benefit will come about. And so we should desire that the, uh, uh, the uh, greater gifts be used for the benefit, the greatest benefit of God's church. And so if you have a spiritual gift and you're not using it, the greatest benefit to God's church is not taking place. If you have that spiritual gift and you're not using it as God designed it to be used, God, the greatest benefit is not coming about. So it says we need to desire that everyone uses their gifts. We need to desire that everyone uses the, the gifts to the greatest potential in the moment that they have them, which is now, which is now. And then he says, there, I will show you a more excellent way. So the, 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 it is great that every gift be used. That is the greatest thing we need to be desiring, the greatest benefit to God's church. The greatest benefit to God's church is us using our gifts, trusting how God has given his gifts to everyone. How often have you looked at somebody else and said, man, they're kind of wasting their potential. If only they would use what they've been given in this way, because we know best, right? If only they would use what they've been given in the way that I deem they need to be using it, then everything would be fantastic. But in truth, the greatest benefit to God's church is trusting that he knows best, and I do not. The greatest benefit to God's church may be trusting that he knows best, and I do not. So sometimes the greatest benefit to God's church is me keeping my mouth shut. Because I think I know best. Because I think in my omniscient, that's all knowingness of myself, that I know everybody's circumstance. I know all the details that are going on. And so I know how everyone should be gifted and how everyone should be using their gifts. I know best. Because I, I, can, I can observe their situation and know everything that's going on. And so I can judge that situation. But we saw actually before this series... Uh, we talked one week about judge not lest you be judged, that when we prejudge someone based upon incomplete facts, which we do not have all the facts, which even about ourselves we don't have all the facts, only Jesus does. Sometimes we prejudge ourselves based upon information we don't know all of. But when we prejudge somebody else based upon incomplete information that we must assume we do not have all the information, then we are prejudiced against that person and what God can do through them, which is the base root of the word, prejudice, pre judge based upon something that we're observing and not actual truth, God's truth. And the actual truth is God loves all people. God wants all people to know Jesus, irregardless of how much money they got, irregardless of their skin color, irregardless of what their job is, irregardless of, what, uh, of how you interpret what they wrote on Facebook. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody write something on Facebook or, or on text message and the way you read it is not how it was intended to be read. There was a story about an employee talking with their boss at their annual review, and the employee felt like the boss was always mad at him because the boss didn't know how to turn off the caps lock on his keyboard. And so they felt like the boss was always screaming at him. And he said, no, I just I don't know how to work the computer. I, when, I, when you read one of my emails, I want you to always assume I'm writing it while smiling that I'm writing it while I'm smiling because I'm pleased with you. And honestly, that's how the Lord sees us. He, he, that's why he sent Jesus to us. He loves us and he's pleased with us. That's why he sent Jesus so he would die and raise for us in our place. And so we need to trust him. Trust that he knows best and I don't. Trust that he knew what he was doing when he gifted you, when he gifted me, when he placed you in your current circumstance. Trust that he knows what he's doing. Trust him. Don't trust somebody else. Don't even honestly trust yourself. Trust the Lord. Don't trust your heart. Scripture says the heart is deceitful above all else. Trust him because he knows best. So the greatest benefit to God's church is trusting that he knows best. 
Man, how many arguments and, and frustrations and problems would be diffused if Christians would just assume God knew best and stop saying what they say sometimes? Trust that God knows best, and I do not. And he says there's a more excellent way even than that. What is more excellent? What is far greater, far greater than assuming that I know best how someone should use their gift? And so I must content myself with the fact that God knows best. And so the, the best way that my gift be used, the best way that anybody's gift be used for the benefit of the church is what Paul describes next. That's how he sets up 1 Corinthians 13. The best way that your gift can be used is in what he says in 1 Corinthians 13. Look at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So look at what he's saying. If I speak in, in amazing tongues, languages of, of men, of things nobody's ever heard of, but I don't have love, then anything I say is means nothing. If I have all prophetic powers and am able to say the future of every single one of you, if I understand all the myths, if I have all wisdom that has ever existed in all of humanity, if I have all knowledge, if my brain is able to contain everything that's ever been known ever, and if I have all faith so as to literally remove mountains, if I could walk out those doors and say to that forest, all you trees fall down so we can use that land for something else, if I have that kind of faith, but I don't have love in the midst of it. I'm nothing. None of that means anything if I don't have love. I, it, it means nothing if I don't have love, if I don't express love, if I don't show love. And think about love as it's not an emotion. It's a choice. It's a decision. It's a de Do you think God had the emotional love for a people who constantly rebelled against him? God chose to love us. He chose it. That means it's more powerful than an emotion. Emotions fade with the situation. They ebb and flow with whatever's going on in the moment. But a decision, we can decide something even when it's hard, even when it's difficult. You can decide to love somebody even when it's difficult. Anybody love difficult people? A few of you? Maybe you are the difficult person. That's why you didn't raise your hand. <laughs> Maybe you're sitting next to the difficult person and you were too embarrassed. You didn't want to say anything. But... <laughs> Maybe you love your pastor. Yeah, that's, that's a difficult person, I guarantee you. Can I get an amen? Jeez. Okay, she goes, I raised my hand. That's what she, <laughs> it's, when we love, we need to make the decision to do it. Make the decision. So even if we have these fantastic things, and something that we would, we would call, if we watched somebody make a prophecy and it came true the next moment, we'd say, man, that's amazing. If we watched somebody... Who, who expressed all wisdom or all knowledge about an issue. If we saw somebody do something incredible with faith that we have never seen before, like making a mountain literally move, it would be incredible. But if that person did not express love, Paul is saying then none of that means anything. No matter what you observe about their spiritual life or the assumption you make about them being quote-unquote godly, if they don't have love and display it and demonstrate it and choose it, then none of that stuff means anything. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. He says, verse 3, If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So, so if I sell everything, like Jesus told the rich, young, the rich guy, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. If I sell everything and give it to the poor, but have not love, then that means nothing. It doesn't mean anything. If I deliver up my body to be burned, if I am a martyr for the name of Jesus, but don't display love, it means nothing. Nothing. It means I gain nothing. You see, because love is essential for the believer. There's one commentator I read this week. His name is Leon Morris. He said, love is essential because nothing makes up for its lack. There's nothing that can make up for love. There's no substitute for it. Lo nothing makes up for its lack. If you're writing that down, his name's Leon Morris. Nothing makes up for its lack. Nothing can make up for the lack of love in your life. It, love is one of those ingredients that can only be what it is. Nothing can substitute. You can't fake it. 
till you make it. You, you choose it in the moment, even when it's hard, even when the situation's rough, even when you're brought to your knees because you feel so weak. Love is a decision right then. You have to make and choose it. I will choose to love these kids. I will choose to love my spouse. I will choose to love my parents. I will choose to love my neighbor. I will choose to love that political person who disagrees with me online. I will choose to love that person who's in the church, in the room right now, and I have a problem with them, and I can't stand them. I will choose to love them, irregardless of what they did to me yesterday. I will choose to love them anyway. Love is essential for the believer. But what is love? Paul describes it. And the way Paul describes it, we're going to dig into what some of these words meant in the original language. It seems at times to be too lofty a thing, that too impossible to try to acquire. But as we've said many, many times, perfection cannot be known in this world. But pursuit of Jesus will bring us in our lives uh, on a uh, path of progress. We won't know perfection till heaven. And so what God desires here and now is progression, not perfection. If you shoot for perfection, you'll just get discouraged because you won't make it. You just need to be better today than you were yesterday in your pursuit of Jesus. Better on Tuesday than you were on Monday. Better in a year from now than you were today in your pursuit of Jesus, making progress. And so here's his description of, so if we're supposed to choose love, he kind of gives us what love is supposed to look like then, the things that we're choosing. Okay, here we go, verse 4. Love is patient and kind. So if we're choosing to love somebody, that means we are choosing to be patient with them. We are choosing to be kind with them. In the comment section on social media, that means choosing to be kind with them. All right. I know some of you, I've seen your comments. I searched the comment section, too, to see the crazy people, which is some of you. Sometimes I've typed up a comment, and I'm like, oh, I need to delete that right before I accidentally hit confirm. I need to delete that quick. <laughs> There's no benefit that can come from that. Love is patient. And now, it doesn't say it's patient and kind on occasion. It's patient and kind when the person you're choosing to love is also patient and kind. I'm only going to be patient and kind when they're patient and kind. It just says it is patient and kind. No matter how that person acts, no matter what that person does, no matter what that person says, no matter per how that person acts, feels, thinks, you love them anyway. Love is patient and kind with them. Look at the next one. Love does not envy or boast. Love doesn't brag. Love doesn't brag. Love isn't envious of what God has given to somebody else. Remember what we said a minute ago, the greatest benefit to the church could be that you trust the Lord and what he does, that he knows best and I don't. And so if God has blessed someone in a certain way and you want that certain thing that he's blessed that person with, you're being envious of what's going on. You're, you're, you're saying God should have blessed you in the, that same way God blessed them, that God did wrong in blessing them instead of you in that way. It's not trusting. So love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. It's not prideful. Puffing ourselves up while kicking somebody else down. Now, I love this one. Verse 5, or rude. Love is not rude. Love is not rude. Literally, what that word means is shaming someone. Love does not intentionally shame somebody else. Whether to their face or behind their back with gossip or slander or rumor. Love is not rude. Love does not shame somebody else. If we're supposed to be demonstrating the love of Jesus to everyone, love is not rude. It does not shame anyone in any capacity, even in our own minds when we think about somebody. Love is not rude about somebody else, even in our own heads. We must choose in our own minds to be that way. Love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. Now, if your thought when we read that one was, well, so-and-so doesn't love me because they always insist on their own way, well, that's being arrogant that we just read about in the previous verse. <laughs> You're saying, well, they need to be paying attention right here. This isn't about for you to take and slap somebody else across the face. This is for you. This is for me. In my own relationship with Jesus, walking through every one of these and seeing how he can help me in the process. 
And now these last two in verse 5, this is about where we're going to get into some real mess, all right? Love is not irritable. <laughs> that literally means to be irritated or angered. So love is not angerable. Anybody wrestle with that one? I do. I'll be first one up. Right here. <laughs> love is not irritable. Irritable. Angerable. When the kids wake up early with buckets fulls of energy. <laughs> you got to have the mantra in your head. I love them. I love them. I love them. I love them. Jesus gave them to me. They're a blessing. I love them. I love them. I love them. Someday they will pay for my retirement home. I love them. I love them. I love them. <laughs> That's what I tell them. They need to get a good job so they can take care of me when I get older. <laughs> uh, love is not irritable. Is not. We need to choose. See, when we choose to be irritated or angered by someone we're supposed to love, we're choosing ourselves and how we feel over against pointing that individual to Jesus. When we love them, we're pointing them to Jesus. But when we choose to be angered, when we choose when we choose to be irritable, we're choosing that instead of love. It's not, you can't be irritable and angerable. I'm making that word up. You, you can't be that and loving towards them at the same time. They, just, they don't work. They fit in the same spot within us. And so we're choosing one over the other. And so Paul is saying, this is what love is. Love is not irritable. You can choose love, but that means if you do, then you're not being irritable. Then you're not being angerable towards that individual. But love is also not resentful. Some of your translations say something else because what this word literally means is love does not keep a mental record of bad events for the sake of some future action. Or some of your translations say keep a record of wrongs. That's what that means. Love does not keep a mental record of bad events for the sake of some future action. You don't keep things stored away to bring back later to hit them with. You don't keep a list of things in your mind so that every time you think about that person, all you see is that list. Well, they did this, and they did this, and that makes me think this about them. I get irritable about that person because I got this list in the back of my mind. Love doesn't do that. To choose love means to erase the list. That doesn't mean you're naive. That doesn't mean you do any of that. That just means you forgive and you love. You forgive and you love. How many times? What did Jesus say? 70 times 7. So 490 and I'm good. No. <laughs> they go wrong 491 times. It's over. I'm dropping the hammer now. That's not what he means. It's 7 times 70. I mean, 7 was the perfect number, so perfection times perfection. It's for always. Forgiveness that he has for me doesn't have a limit. And so forgiveness I have for somebody else shouldn't have a limit. In the same way, love he has for me has no limit. And so the love I exercise for somebody else should not have a limit. And so the moment, and practice this, I promise you, this week, this afternoon, somebody's going to do something wrong to you, and you're going to instantly put it on a list in the back of your head. The enemy's coming after you. He is, I know, because I've done this. I can feel it. You put that list, the second you write it down in your brain, it's going to be almost impossible to forget it. It will be there. It will be there. You've got to wipe it away with the blood of Jesus and say, I'm choosing love rather than that. I'm choosing love rather than that. And so it's not keeping it logged away for some future action to, to reach back in your bucket of tricks and slap them with when a moment comes. Or keep a, 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 a fuel, a fire burning of bitterness in the back of your mind whenever you think about those things about that person, of what they've done, or what you assume they've done, or what you think their motivation was behind what they did. But it's not keeping it. Choosing love means following Jesus, which means not keeping that list. Look at verse 6. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I love that one. Love bears all things. Love, if we choose to love, love is strong enough that it can withstand whatever comes our way. If we choose to love, love uh, believes all things. That means believes the positive things. Love always assumes the good. 
we as human beings, because we're flawed and we're sinful, it is so easy for us to assume the bad. That's why the news puts so much bad news on, because it's what we watch, because it feeds our sin nature. They put on things, because the news, I mean, I don't even know if you knew this, but the news is a business, and they want to make money, and they need more viewers, and so we can put out what people are going to watch. And so when they put out bad news, it feeds our sin nature, makes us want to watch it. It's like, why do we always look at the car wreck when we drive by? Because it feeds our sin nature. We want to see it. And so he, what he's saying is, if we choose to love, that means we're going to believe all the good things. We're going to choose to believe the good. Not instantly assume the bad. Believe the good. And hope for all things. Hope that redemption is always p- possible. Hope in what Jesus can do with every life. Love will endure everything that happens. Love will persevere because of the next statement he makes. In the next verse, he says, because love never ends. Love never ends. If love is a choice and love is a decision that we need to consistently make, love does not have an expiration date. What he's going to tell us in in this little description we're going to read is that when you die, love doesn't stop. Love does not stop. Because look at this. Remember, he's talking about in the middle of his discussion about spiritual gifts, about love. He says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So he's talking about the end time, when, when we're all in heaven. When the new, ev- new heaven and new earth come, book of Revelation, we're not going to need anything in part. The perfect will have arrived at that point. And so we're not going to need these things like prophecy or tongues uh, or these things. He says, uh, verse 11, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. I started acting like a child. I started acting like a baby. You know, there's other parts of Paul's writings where he says, Stop being babies. You ever want to yell that at somebody? Stop being a baby. Well, that's not loving. (laughs) That's what we just talked about, right? He said, that's why he talks about himself. When I was a child, I thought like a child, I spoke like a child. But when I became a man, I grew up. And I put those childish ways and childish actions and childish thoughts behind me. And I chose love. Paul, who shared the gospel with the people, his jailers. Paul, who had his head cut off, we think, because he followed Jesus. We don't know what happened in that process, but we know Paul's history, and we know how Paul was, and he shared the gospel everywhere he went. I picture Paul up on the block in front of everybody sharing the gospel with the crowd and the guy with the axe up until the last second. That's because he loved. He didn't care the guy's about to cut his head off. He wanted that guy to go to heaven. Just like Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know what they do. Asking forgiveness for the guys who put the nails in his hands because he loved them. If it's me, on the strike them down right now. <laughs> that's not Jesus. He's all love. Demonstrating that, and that's what Paul was. Because I gave that up and I chose love. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Gifts, as we know them, at that point will no longer be necessary when we no longer walk the earth. Because what spiritual gifts do is they point towards the perfect. They point towards a future when perfection will have arrived. Gifts are supposed to point people to Jesus. When they meet Jesus, they meet perfection, and we will all exist in perfection in heaven. And so when we are existing in perfection in heaven, we don't need to point to perfection in some far future. Perfection will be all around us. And so gifts, as I'm going to say that caveat, as we know them, There may be some other form of gifts being used at that moment, but gifts as we now currently know them will not exist in that context because there won't be a need to point to the perfect future. The perfect future will be the perfect present. That's what Paul's saying. But even though those things will pass away, what did he say all the way back up at verse 8? Love never ends. Those other things will. Love never ends. Love never ends. Verse 13. Now, faith, hope, and love abide, remain, exist, live now, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So 
Love is foundational. Love is the most basic ingredient in the life of a believer because love is necessary for salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God so loved the world. Love is what began salvation. And so that is the base root of the Christian, love. God chose to love us. And so we then, in turn, need to choose to love others around us, which is all throughout Scripture. 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. Did I put this in there, Omar? Oh, there it is. Either I put it in there or you are very fast on the draw, man. That's good. Uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. Paul, uh, John writes, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And by brother, he's meaning people there, other fellow believers, other people who exist in this world. If you say you love God but don't choose to love other people, do you really love God? John's saying no. If you choose to love God, that means choosing to love other people too, choosing to love the people that God loves. If you choose to love God, that means displaying love in all avenues of our life. You can't say, God, I want your love, but I'm not going to give it out to these people. They are just, no, they are bad people. They are bad. They are not nice people. The other day we were, this is, has nothing, this illustration was not in my notes at all. <laughs> the other day we were watching a football game. It was a week ago, watching the Cowboys. And uh, Hope, my four-year-old was watching it with us, and she was saying, well, who are we rooting for? And I tell her, yeah, these are the Cowboys. They're, they're God's team. Uh, I didn't tell her that. <laughs> it's the truth, but I didn't tell her that. Uh, she says, so the other team's the bad guys. I said, well, they're not bad guys, but we're not rooting. We want them to lose. Um, uh, and so sometimes we label people as bad guys in how we choose to love them, whether we choose to love them or not. By not loving them, we are displaying a prejudice within us against them. And we're not loving God by not loving them. And, not, and by not loving, I mean not exercising love in the way he describes here. Because love is a choice. That means love is an action. You can't just say, I love you, and not back it up with what he says there in verses 4, 5, and 6. If you're not doing 4, 5, and 6 to those people, then you're not loving them. If you're choosing to not be kind, then you're not loving. If you're choosing to be rude, or shaming someone, if you're choosing to keep a mental record of bad events, if you're choosing to be irritated or angered, then you're not choosing love, then you're not loving Jesus in that moment. That's what Paul is saying in conjunction with what John says in 1 John chapter 4. If I love God, I must love people. Love cannot exist in me if I don't also hand it out to anybody and everybody. Then maybe I don't have it to begin with. That's a hard one to embrace. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Why this is so important. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly but since love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love helps us get past some things that we can't in our own humanity. When the offense and the bitterness is welling up within us. What Peter says in conjunction with what John said, with what Paul said here in 1 Corinthians 13, if I am choosing to love them and exercising that love, and like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, uh, uh, 4 5, and 6, if I'm choosing to love them in that way, then it can cover a multitude of sins, a multitude of offense, a multitude of bitterness that I have built up because of what I perceive as offense from that person to me. If I choose to love them, then it can cover that and we can be unified in Christ. Jesus said as a commandment in John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. A commandment of Jesus. What did Jesus say in the Great Commission? In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go be my witnesses, or uh, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all of my commands, even this one, all of my commands. If we are supposed to be a disciple of Jesus, follower of Jesus, a Christian, which is what Christian means, little Christ, follower of Jesus, 
then we must obey that command right there in John 15, 12. Love one another as I have loved you. If you were to go through your contact list in your phone or your Facebook friend list, would you honestly be able to say that you have loved those people as Christ has loved you? If, don't even go there. If you were to love everyone in your house as Christ has loved you, nope, <laughs> right off the bat, I tell you, no, I have not done that. Maybe moment by moment, you know, depending on what's happening, how I feel, how I slept, how I feel because of what I ate, how I feel because of that phone call I just got. But if that's how I choose to love, but that's not real love because that's based upon my emotions and my feeling and my, my stomach issues, then that's not based upon Jesus. Jesus never changes yesterday, today, or tomorrow. He's the same. And so my, if my love is based upon the way Jesus loved me, then my love can never get less. It can only get greater. It can only get greater. Love one another as I have loved you. This is why John chapter 13, verses 34 and 30, you need to memorize these two, all right? If you don't have a verse to memorize this week, this one, this is it. John 13, 34, and 35. If you memorize one verse a week, here's two. This will get you for the next two weeks. Memorize these two right here. I love the way Jesus says it too. A new commandment, as though it's never been said before, right? I'm going to give you a new commandment. Love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Why? Verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If we love each other, like Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, 5, and 6, in the way that Jesus wants us to love one another, and by this all people will know that you are my disciples. In exercising our gifts, in how we interact with one another, if we love each other in that way, the world will know that we're Christians. The world will know we're followers of Jesus. The world will know we belong to Jesus. But how often do our actions and our words and, honestly, our thoughts scream that I don't belong to Jesus? He says the recognition of Jesus in your life is how well you love. How well you love. Is how you do your job any different than anybody else at your job? Are you at your job just to make money for the people who employ you? Or is it to love? If we as Christians are supposed to be different, supposed to look different, if we're supposed to be recognized by how we love, then yes, your job, the way you do it should be different because you have the love of Jesus in you. As a teacher, is your job simply to educate kids? No. That should be part of it, yes, absolutely. But Jesus has put a beacon of love in the lives of every one of those kids, and that's you. Love needs to be there. In your office, did he put you in the office that you're in simply to be there and to make money and to check in and check out? No, he puts you there to be loving to everyone you come in contact with, the people you talk to on the phone. Love, demonstrate that love. Did he put you with the kids you got, the spouse you have, the neighbors that you have, the friends you have to just exist there Teach the kids how to change a tire and do a budget and ship them off. They should know those things. If not, that's why YouTube exists, right? They're, they should be different because they're in the house of somebody who has love. Your spouse should be different because they're in the house of somebody who has love. The way you live your life as a husband should not be the way every other person in the world lives their life. It should be the way a Christian who has the love of Jesus lives their life. Same as a wife, same as a mom, same as a dad. Same as a grandmother and a grandfather. It should be the way you have love. Yeah, maybe your kids are parenting different than you parented, but that's not your job. Your job is to love. Maybe your daughter-in-law is not doing it the same way you did. In the words you say, is there love there? Love there. Maybe your child is making decisions that you think are bonehead decisions. In the way you interact with that person, that child, that person that Jesus loves and died for, is your interaction loving? 
in the way Paul describes? Is it loving? I'm not just coming, I'm, I'm speaking from a place of this has been, Jesus has been drilling this into me for several weeks. And so it's not just me saying it to you. He's already been screaming it at me in my interactions at my house, here at the church, at people's homes. I was visiting with somebody this week. And in the midst of the conversation, I felt him say, are you loving the person or are you just getting to the end of this conversation? Man, thank you, Jesus. Conversation went from what I anticipated being a five-minute conversation to an hour and a half. Because of Jesus. The person I was talking to needed something. Not just a check in the box of my checklist. They needed Jesus. They needed love. That's how the world knows who we are. We need to be different. You know what? We need to be instantly recognizable as possessors of love. Instantly recognizable because of who we have, Jesus. Not looking like everybody else. Not acting like everybody else. Not thinking like everybody else. Not commenting like everybody else. We need to be different because we have Jesus. Because we have Jesus. Because we have this love. You know, because in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the church, in the eyes of the world, Christians are recognized by how well they love. Not how smart they are. Not by, by what the resume says or what their obituary is going to say someday. Christians are recognized by how well they love. Je that's what Jesus said in John 13, by how well they love. You say, well, I love by just saying truth, by saying my opinion. That's how I love. No, that's not love. That's arrogance. Let's be honest. Come on. If you're just saying what you're saying, irregardless of the consequences of how you say them, then you're not loving. You're not. You just want to do what you want to do and say what you want to say and be who you want to be and be the grumpy old man sitting on the porch screaming at kids to get off your lawn. Which <laughs> I remember my uncle said that was his goal someday. He's just sitting on the front porch in his underwear and screaming at kids who walk by. <laughs> and, uh, and he said he was going to go on a, a diet so he would be thin by then, just lose one pound a year, so by then he would be good. <laughs> well, that's a worthy goal, I guess. But uh, that our goal should not be thinking in those terms of, well, I just want to spout what I want to spout and say what I want to say. Our goal should be loving and pointing people to Jesus at every opportunity. Every opportunity. How many problems would have been avoided in the last political cycle if Christians would have kept their mouths shut? It's stuff that doesn't matter. Spoken where things did matter in love. In love. Still spoken, but spoken in love. Too often we don't speak in love. We don't act in love. We don't think in love. We just act and think and speak in the way the world does because that's how everybody else is acting, and so we should act the same way and hit just as back hard as they did. But that's not the command that Jesus gave. Love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you. As I have loved you, because that's how the world will recognize who you are. It's how you treat each other, the way uh, help uh, the world recognize that you have Jesus. It doesn't. It doesn't. And so how we act and think and use our gifts must be in love. Our gifts can only be deployed the way God intended with love. You in the lives of the people that you are in. Jesus put you there because of love. To love one another. To show love, display love, as Paul described it. In every opportunity, every experience, in love. And so what I've had to do as I've processed this is walk through that first, uh, or first Corinthians 13, 4, 5, and 6. Am I loving in my interactions in this way? Am I choosing love or choosing me? Am I choosing love or choosing something else? Will that person recognize me as being a follower of Jesus based on that one interaction? Or will they recognize me as something else? And so, you know, last week I, I had asked you to 
uh, practice your gift in some capacity, and I hope some of you did. Some of you let me know you did. I got text messages this week. Um, but what you need to work on this week, what I'm going to challenge you to work on this week is love. Make a mental note, a decision. Maybe you need to write it on your paper, put it on your dashboard. Make a note. I choose love. And don't wait till the moment that the situation arises to choose love. Pre-choose. Choose now. Choose love now. Pre-choose love now. Maybe at your kid's sporting event, you need to choose to love the referee. <laughs> Maybe how you speak to the TV when you're watching the football game this afternoon. <laughs> you need to choose to love those because people are watching how you act in your house. Choose love now so that when you come to the situation that is difficult, you're already in a loving position. Pre-choose love. Because what you need to understand is maybe you've never encountered this kind of love before. You need to understand that God pre-chose love when it came to you. He pre-chose love with you. And maybe you've never experienced that kind of love. And you need to know that Jesus loves you. He loves you. And he died for you. So all your sins would be forgiven, all of them, even the ones you're going to do tomorrow, even the ones that wound you up in jail. He forgave them already. He forgave them before you were born. And that forgiveness can only be accepted when you believe in him. Will you accept his forgiveness today? Believe that Jesus, God's son, died for you, and he rose for you so that, all, so that you can live after you die. You gain forgiveness. You gain eternal life if you believe. And so if you need to believe today, I want you to come and talk to me. I'll be here at the front. I'm going to be praying for our church that we would love in this way. I'll be right here. And Micah will be here as well. And if you're watching online, uh, there's a button right below me, wherever you're watching, Facebook, YouTube, on our website, that says, I made a decision. You click on that and just say, this is a decision I made. And that sends an email straight to my email, and I will call you today or tomorrow. And you will get that phone call. And I want to celebrate with what God has done with you and through you and in you. Uh, and so we need to choose love. And so that's the question you have to ask yourself. Will I choose love? Will I choose love?